We are right in the middle now of our series on meeting Jesus and uh, just looking at different encounters with Jesus that people had throughout the Gospels. Our aim in this series is to give you a very authentic taste yourself of the, the Jesus of the Bible. It's very, very easy to um, use the term, phrase, name Jesus, but really be moving quite a long way away from the, the, the historical Jesus of Nazareth. So we thought um, 10 or so weeks to dig right into the gospel narratives and find different encounters with Jesus would really help us just see Jesus afresh ourselves. So we've got a very uh, tender encounter with Jesus today, which we're going to find in the book of John, chapter 20. The words will come up on the screen here. If you want to follow it in a Bible of your own, then put your Bible with you. Feel free to turn to John, chapter 20. We're going to look at um, uh, Jesus and his resurrection encounter with Mary Magdalene, or Mary Magdalene's encounter with the resurrected Jesus, I guess, which is more to the point. John, chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and she saw that the, and saw that the, tomb, the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord. I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful uh, account of uh, the appearance, Father, of your Son, Jesus, to Mary. And it's so tender and so, uh, uh, so touching for us. I pray, Lord, that... Um, in, in a, I guess in a similar way, by your Spirit, we would hear you calling us by name. Freshly today and recognising how that changes everything. Amen. 
Well, I just want to unpack the story really and um, give you a little bit of background first of all. Um, Mary Magdalene had, uh, uh, was one of the many women who travelled around with Jesus. Jesus, had, Jesus was quite radical in that regard, in the, sense, in the way that he treated women in the day. Um, women were viewed as second-class citizens at this age, in this time, and um, Jesus had many uh, women friends, women financial supporters, um, and um, obviously his mum, it seems, and some of his siblings travelled with him. Um, but Mary particularly seems to have had, a, 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 in a sense... A special, how can I put it? Um, well, we're told that Jesus drove seven evil spirits out of her. That she had, had, she had been a woman whose life before Jesus was very dark. Uh, she'd been into some things that had clearly left their mark in her spirit. She wasn't in a good place at all. We sort of, you pick this up as you read through the Gospels, that she'd got to a place where she was oppressed by dark forces and, and Jesus had come and Jesus had liberated her from there and brought in his light and brought in his truth and brought in his life and as a result you see there's this there's this uh, gratitude there's this depth of wonder that Jesus has, has done this and uh, Jesus said elsewhere in relation it was, seems like it was either about Mary or about another woman of a similar background he says those who have been forgiven much love much and uh, it's an interesting one isn't it those who have been forgiven much love much those who really get and understand the depths to which they've been forgiven by Jesus their hearts out of that swell with gratitude and swell with devotion and affection to Jesus. And this is a really important point. I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to see this as a side point. I don't think it's a coincidence that Mary was the first one there. Uh, her devotion to her. I mean, the things she says are really quiet. You think, well, she says at one point, tell me where he is and I'll, I'll move him. Well, she's not going to, is she? Um, I'm sure he would have been bigger and heavier than her. And he, he was, a, he was a, as she thought at this point, a dead body. And dead bodies are notoriously heavy. Um, I'll move him. Show me where he is and I'll move him. It's the words of someone who's not really thinking it through, but the devotion, her devotion is carrying her words. She just wants to uh, get him back, as far as she's concerned, in the right place and get him settled. She, she hadn't come there to see the risen Jesus. She'd come there to uh, anoint him properly and to make sure he was buried well. She wasn't expecting him to be risen from the dead at all. But there's this devotion now. I want to I draw attention to it because I think it's important. I think that um, I, wanna, I want us to be mindful of this idea that the more you're forgiven, the more you love. And there's a reason for it, and it's because I, I, I think it's really important that as a church, we don't get into a culture of respectability. That actually what we, we, we fall into this idea that actually what we are are a group of people that are quite, quite nice. And that's really what we are. And so we're kind of nice with one another, and we get together and we smile, and we do nice things for each other, because we're the nice ones. That is not the biblical understanding of what a church is. A church is a bunch of people who have been forgiven. Yeah. And, and therefore, they're a bunch of people that love Jesus. And they're a bunch of people that don't forget where they've come from. They don't become self-righteous. They don't become uh, morally superior in that sense. They constantly live with this fact. They remember where they've come from. And they also remember if it wasn't for the daily, momentary grace of God to where they'd return. This is massively huge. 
And because this is the difference between a vibrant living church and a church that becomes somewhere where you don't really want to be unless you're having a good day. If ever you develop a culture of a church where you don't rock up if things aren't going well, you know something's gone wrong at that point. Because actually what we are are a bunch of people who have received mercy and who have received grace and need to receive mercy and grace daily and who don't look to others who have not yet received the mercy and grace of Jesus as if we're better than them but we look at them with this sense of man, man, uh, I've received mercy and grace and I really want you to receive it too. And it's not, there's nothing looking on saying I'm better in some way. Uh, there's, no, there's no sense of looking down upon, of, of, of kind of judging in that sense, but in a sense of saying I know now, having met Jesus, the amount for which I needed forgiven. And as a result, I want the whole world to know that forgiveness is found in Jesus Christ. And if you're in a position where you are holding back in that and you're not, you just don't feel for whatever reason that you can bring all that you are, mess and all, to Jesus, something's wrong. Something's really wrong. If you've got into this thing of, well, it's just about, you know, showing Jesus, doing, the, doing the Jesus and the kind of religious stuff, but, you know, oh, Jesus won't really want to know about that because that's a real mess. No, Jesus really wants to know about that and he really wants to get involved and he really wants to bring freedom and he really wants to bring cleansing and he really wants to bring mercy and grace. Why? Because he really wants you to love him. And the more of that you receive, the more you will love him. So it's vital that we just understand who Mary is before we get any further. She's a woman whose background is of disrepute. And yet she's received the mercy of Jesus Christ. And the church should be full of of such people. And actually the church is. Just some of them don't realise. We're all Marys really. And we we must not be afraid of that. Because that's where we find grace. So we are to be real. Amen? Amen? None of that pretending business. None of that allowed. Authentic people only. Now I want to draw your attention to something really quite shocking and that that Mary really becomes the primary witness. She becomes the primary witness of the resurrection. Because it's through her that the apostles find out that Jesus has been risen from the dead. This is shocking that Jesus would appear to a woman. Absolutely shocking. Why? Because in those days, a woman's testimony in court would not even be received. So you've got to to immerse yourself back into, you know, 2,000 miles away, 2,000 years ago. Literally, a woman's testimony would not be received in court because women were considered hysterical. Doesn't make me chuckle a bit. I'm sorry. I mean, it's not. It's it's the the chuckle of incredulity. Surely not. Not the chuckle of anything else. But, you know, Darina laughs too, so that's fine. Uh, But it's like, really, this is how people thought. Now, bear in mind that the main task, really, of the apostles was to declare and witness to the resurrection of Jesus. That's really what was the bulk of their preaching. He's risen from the dead. But the primary person he comes to is a woman. Why is this? Here's why this is. Jesus is, is the radical female liberator. Christianity is a radical female liberation movement. It was then radically so and it is now radically so. Absolutely. There's no question about it. Jesus went and spoke to the woman at the well in John 4. His disciples thought, he's talking to a woman and she's a Samaritan but he's too scared to ask him why. But they were freaked out by it. 
It was really considered a strange thing that Jesus did. It was culturally not what you did at all. And then as you go on, you find Paul in his greetings, his ministry team, those who travelled with him, was a mixture of male and a mixture of female. It's very, very radical. Paul saying things like, in Christ Jesus, there's no, no longer any slave or any free, any Jew or any Gentile, any male or any female. It's radical, explosive stuff. Radical and explosive liberation of women. Absolutely. And in light of that, we have nothing to fear about the Bible's teaching about men and women. So, where the Bible still speaks about the difference between men and women, the celebration of masculinity and femininity, we are not to think that somehow they were caught in some backwater or they were afraid to challenge the gender inequality of the day. They were absolutely brave and audacious in their challenge of it. The differentiation between male and female that is in the Bible is for liberation. And it is for celebration. And it is not to be fought against or kind of uh, uh, read into the wrong way or misunderstood. Jesus absolutely wants to be friends with women as well as men and wants to call them into fruitful and powerful service as well as men. Amen? Amen. 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 It's fantastic. Good. I'm glad, I'm glad you understand that. Because I fear sometimes there may be some misunderstanding on these matters. The Bible is very, very clear in these matters that male and female, men and women, are made equally in the image of God and yet made complementary. They are made in such a way as to fit together beautifully. And God calls men to be men and to act like men and not to shrink back from being a man and to take up all that it means to be a man. And God is exactly the same to women, that they have to be strong in, their, in the grace that is found in Christ as women, that they are to take that up, that they are to celebrate their womanhood in the Lord Jesus, and they are to find beauty and purpose in that. Yes, 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 yes. Great. <laughs> That's nice. Okay. Now there's this moment, the moment of the encounter, it must be the moment of the encounter, where Jesus just says, Mary. It's incredible. She doesn't recognise it's him. Now, you find this a few times in the Gospels when Jesus is raised from the dead, that they kind of... I mean, there was another time where they walked down the road with Jesus, it seems for hours, and then invited him into their home and sat down for a meal. And it wasn't until he broke the bread that they recognised him. You think... But you were like with him for years. What's happened? I don't know. But it's a theme that comes through. Oh, you know, there's a man on the shore saying, drop your nets over the other side. And they didn't know who he was. And they're thinking, okay, fine. And then one of them goes, it's the Lord. Here, Mary thinks, it's the gardener. Mary, you were like with him for three years. And (laughs) do you mean he was the gardener? (laughs) Well, it seems like in some way, Jesus' resurrection appearances, he was kind of the same. Scars on his hands still, put your hands there. He was clearly the same, but he was different as well. I mean, he would appear in locked rooms without opening the door, you know. So he was physical, but it wasn't like you and me are physical. He had his his resurrected body, and blowed if I know what that's like, except that it's amazing, and it's physical. So he was different, so there was this moment here, but she didn't recognise him, that's the point. She didn't recognise him, she didn't get him, and then he called her name, and then she got him. Oh, 
Oh, there's wealth, there's depth, there's riches in that. Because the reality is this, none of us get Jesus until we hear him call us by name. You can't get Jesus until the Spirit of God reveals Jesus to you. And and in that moment of revelation, you know you've been called by name. Now, as a church, what we've done over the last, I guess, couple of years is that we've emphasised the fact that we are corporate. We're together. We're the church. We are us. Now, the reason why is because we are battling something in our culture which is massively individualistic. It's all about me. My dreams, my hopes. Yeah, I'll have the Lord, but if he'll he'll help me accomplish what I'm doing, I'll have Jesus too, you know? Because it's all about me. And we've tried to really get the axe and kill that to the root and say, no, that's horrible. That's really not how the Bible approaches things. It's not all, I've got to break it to you, it's not about you and it's not about me. It's all about him. He is the main character in the story. It's not about Jesus helping you be the hero of the story. He's the hero of the story. And we find meaning in life as we lay down our idea of us being the centre, us being the main character, and we say, no Lord, I'm going to play my part in honouring you as the centre. That's life to the full. But the flesh hates it. But it's life to the full. And so we've spoken a lot about the fact that most of the letters in the New Testament are written not to individuals, where we can tend to apply it as individuals. Oh, look, Jesus is telling me, oh, what, is this for me? Yes, it is, but no, it's written to churches. Which is why it says things like, bear with one another, forgive one another. And so many one another's in the New Testament, because it's written to a people, because, he, because God calls us, he calls us into his people. He doesn't just call us into a, an individual kind of thing. I've got to quote some, I've, sorry, um, I forgot about this. Brilliant, thanks darling. Uh, it's always funny, I was on the recording, I'm thinking, what's he saying? Thanks darling, what happened there? I hope I can find this. Um, Sorry, I should have had this prepared, but I totally forgot. Um, Where was it? It's an amazing quote. You know when you can see it on where it is on the page? You ever had that? Yeah, Yeah, I'm having that right now. (laughs) This is so smooth and so seamless at this church. You wouldn't know it, would you? Right. Uh, No, it wasn't there. Sorry about this. When, when I get it, it's worth it. Okay. Uh. <laughs> Go on, build it. Build it. Build the drama. Build the drama. It's under preaching. Go on, you're alright. I'm not intimidated by this. You go on. Slower, slower. Hold on. Yes! <laughs> okay. There's one other aspect of St. Paul's preaching which is often taken for granted, but which is certainly not true, that the Gospel of St. Paul was purely individualistic. To the heathen crowd, St. Paul addressed himself as to a mass of souls from amongst which he was to gather the elect children of God. But he did not approach them as an isolated prophet. He came as an apostle of the church of God and he did not simply seek to gather out individual souls from amongst the heathen. He gathered them into the society of which he was a member. He didn't teach them that they would find salvation by themselves alone, but that they would find it in the perfecting of the body of Christ. Souls were not invited to enter into an isolated, solitary religious life of communion with Christ. They were invited to enter the society in which the Spirit manifested himself and in which they would share in the communication of his life. It was inconceivable that a Christian taught by St. Paul could think of himself as obtaining a personal salvation by himself. He became one of the brothers. 
He shared in the common sacraments, baptism, bread and wine. The church was not an invisible body formed of unknown believers. And he goes on. And this is a massively important point. We've laboured it, we've preached it to renew our minds out of this curse, really, of individualism. What can Jesus do for me? No, no, no. What can we do for the Lord? Because look at what he has done for us. Okay? So we've really laboured that and that's, uh, there is a foundation. Now I've said that, he calls you by name. Amen. So even though it is that, it's not a job lot. It's not like, oh yeah, come on you lot. No, it's Mary. Davina. Simon. He calls us by name. You've got to know that in your heart. You've got to have that sense in your heart. I've been called by Christ. That was one of the most common ways they described salvation in the New Testament. Your calling. Very often now when people use the phrase calling, someone's phone. <laughs> Very often now people, people talk about it in terms of, oh, what's, my call? what's God called me to? He's called you to Christ. Yeah? That's your calling. Into the Lord Jesus Christ. And he saved us, but he has saved you and he has called you by name. I love this. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. When Mary heard that, Mary, it's Jesus. If you really are a believer, you know his voice. You know it in your heart of hearts. In your deepest, in the deepest place, you know it. You know it. And nothing can replace that. And so I want you to be comforted by that. And know that today, even though you may feel like a lost face in the crowd or whatever, he knows you and he's called you by name. And you know what? He has a purpose for you in his grand purpose. And he has a place for you in his church. And even if you're just visiting today and you're not thinking of this being your church, wherever your church is, he has a place for you there. He has gifted you so you can find your place there and function fruitfully, happily, effectively. Oh man. And if he's called you here, he's got a place for you here. And we will help you find that. Because he's called you by name. And he's, he's given you gifts according to who you are. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So there's that. And then we get this other thing here, this uh, strange kind of comment, don't cling to me. <laughs> don't cling to me because I'm not yet ascended. I'm not yet ascended to the Father. And... Uh, I just feel like we need to just be aware of the importance of the ascension. As far as Jesus was concerned, he hadn't finished yet. There was something else really important that needed to happen. After he appeared to everyone, he needed to, to ascend physically back into the presence of the Father in the heavenly realms. And I want us to understand that because it's really important that we get the gospel. So often we just labour the death of Christ. And, you know, pivotal point in human history. I'm not underplaying it. Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross for our sins. Wow! It's huge. It's central. You know, everything hangs on that. Absolutely. But you know, everything also hangs on the resurrection. If he has not risen from the dead, we we are still dead in our sins. 1 Corinthians 15. He rose physically from the dead as a first fruits to show that all those who have died will physically be raised and will stand before Christ, all of us, individually. But after that, he ascended to the Father where he now is. So where's Jesus? You know, you know it's like kids are like, where's Jesus? It's so cool bringing up kids. And the, they say the funniest things about Jesus. One of them said to me the other day, you'll be able to guess who. <laughs> uh, they said, uh, who made the houses? I said, the builders. I said, I thought it was Jesus. 
oh yeah. I said, no, Jesus, Jesus made the raw materials. You try, you know, you just look at oh, what raw materials, you know. Jesus made the raw materials, and then the builders made the houses. And, you, and then sometimes we'll see someone really big in the street, and they'll be like, is that person bigger than Jesus? <laughs> and it's like, mm, well, I said he, he was probably an average height, you know. Uh, I thought he was really big. Well, yeah, he is, you know. And it's this, there's this mystery, isn't there? It's like, ah, oh, how does it work? Because the Bible talks about the physical human Jesus, now human forever, ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. He's taken on human flesh. I mean, it's incredible. The eternal Son has taken on human flesh and is now human forever. Wow! And so he's human, and he's at the right hand of the Father, but he fills all things. How does that work? I've got no idea. I guess, obviously, the Bible's filling all things by his Spirit. But these things are unfathomable. These things are extraordinary. But it's so important that we are clear that Jesus has ascended. And in his ascension, the Spirit of God then descended. So, the Spirit was poured out on Pentecost, and now we live in the age of the ascended Christ, and the descended, the Spirit is being poured out on us. And then Jesus himself will return in the same way that he went, i.e. physically. And it won't be some strange guy in the desert saying weird things, okay? Jesus himself said, like the lightning goes from the east to the west, when the Son of Man returns, everyone will see it. So there's this moment which is described in various ways in the Bible, but it's kind of like the, you know, the sky will be rolled up like an old garment. There'll be a trumpet blast that everyone will hear. These amazingly dramatic images are being used to describe something universal, cosmic. In the moment, we will all get it. Here he comes, riding on the clouds. Wow! And he's going to come back for judgment and for salvation. That's, that's, that's the story. That's what you to understand that. Do you, under, you get it. The incarnation that he, the, the, the eternal son took on flesh. That he lived like us, resisting temptation, died as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, rose from the dead three days later, ascended into heaven where he currently is now. Got it? Really important that you get it. So, be humble, because he's the Lord. And man alive, as a pastor, do you hear a lot of nonsense in this? People are happy with Jesus as friend. Listen, Jesus is Lord. That means you don't get to do Christian life the way you think it should go. You do it the way he says it should go. Okay? You don't get to innovate on everything. No, there's lots of room for innovation, but there are certain things where he's really clear, like repent of your sin. And live a lifestyle of repentance, which is different from living a lifestyle of sin, confess, sin, confess, sin, confess. No, repentance is a change of mind. It's a turning away from sins. But because I'm never going to be perfect, there will always be new things that are highlighted in my heart and life. Oh, turn away from that, renew my mind there. It's progress. It's one degree of glory to another. It's being moved towards the image of Jesus Christ. That's a lifestyle of repentance. All based on his mercy and his blood. It's not legalism, it's just constant. It's all mercy. I get to change because it's broken into my life and empowered me by the Holy Spirit. Every change is a change of liberation, not bondage. It's beautiful, good news. But I tell you, these things are... Jesus is Lord and he calls you to repent of your sin. You can't fudge that. So sin isn't okay. And you can't say, well, I thought, you know, I thought we're kind of into grace. Listen, we are into grace. Grace gives you the power to, grace breaks the power of sin in your life. 
Grace doesn't come along so you can cozy up to sin. It comes along to break you free from the rule of sin. Hallelujah. So you can live under the rule of the grace of God and no longer be a slave to all those things that used to rule your life. All the dark stuff. So you've got to bow the knee. Coming to Jesus is not about praying a prayer. I'll pray this prayer. No, it's about repenting of your sin and trusting him and following him. It's very, very dynamic. There is a moment where it happens, but it signifies a whole change of direction for your whole life. It's not, well, I know I'm totally living in sin and, you know, fooling around this, that and the other. But I prayed a prayer five years ago, so I must be okay. You are on quicksand. You are on quicksand. You are not on a good foundation. That's how it's going. That's not how it works. It's following Jesus. Final point. Final point. It's just incredible. He says this to her. I mean, go and tell the guys, or go to my brothers and say to them, I am, I am ascending to my father and your father. To my God and your God. You think, oh my goodness. The humility of God. The humility of God that God the Son would so descend and so so be so aliken himself to us and and, and, and and then so graciously, so generously, after paying the price for our rebellion and filth and the agony he went through, then so generously and overflowingly say, hey, my father, your father, my God and your God, you think, oh my goodness. How can you, how can you so associate with people like us? How can you so, how can you so take on human nature that you would even be now calling your father also, my God, why it's Jesus, it's Jesus' humanity, it's incredible. And not only that, not only does he take on humanity, he draws us into divinity. Read John 17, he's praying that they, I pray that they would come in to our relation as we are one, that we would draw them in, they would be one with us. You think, what is this? Who Peter says he's given us all we need for life and godliness to his precious promises that we might become partakers of the divine nature. He draws us in. So somehow, because he's fully human but he's also fully God, he said, you know what, I choose to be incomplete without you. Even though I feel all things, even though I'm the Lord of all, I choose to make myself incomplete without you. I'm going to be the head, you're going to be the body. You think, what? It's not just symbolism, it's incredible, it's extraordinary. You are going to become my body. I make myself voluntarily incomplete without you. Wow. This gospel is incredible. This is not follow a few rules. This is God came down. This is, this is utter sympathy, empathy, atonement, rescue, mercy, grace, generosity, invitation, welcome. Let's, let's, let's blend. Let's, let's, let's the very nature of God be changed forever by the God the Son becoming human. And, oh my goodness me. Oh my goodness me. Be amazed. <laughs> be amazed. Be real. Be real, because we're all just sinners that have been rescued. Be confident. Be confident in the scriptures. Be comforted. He calls you by name. Be humble, because he's Lord. And be amazed, because he's welcomed you into his incredible life. Amen? Amen. Amen.